Fine. So we're discussing how the person is not a tzaddik. Because the klipa, the of the animal soul, remains undislodged after prayer. That's such a good word. Undislodged. Double negative. Which means what? Klipa stays? Lodged, right? <laughs> but because in the Hebrew it says Leinidche and and you know so Leinidche would mean it, it, it is not dislodged. Yeah. Okay, fine. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna we're going to be going from page forty nine. The, the line ends with the words for then, for then the, which is talking about the time of prayer. Sorry, after prayer, I apologize. For then the burning love of God is not in a revealed state in his mind, in the right part, but only inwardly paved with hidden love that is the natural adoration of the divine soul, as we'll explain later. And therefore it is possible for the folly of the wicked fool to rise openly in the left part of his heart, creating a lust for all material things of this world, whether permitted or forbidden, as if he had not prayed at all. I'm going to go a little bit forward and then we're going to go back. Nevertheless, in regard to forbidden matters, not occur to him to actually violate the prohibition, God forbid, it remains in the realm of sinful thoughts, which are more heinous than sin itself, and which can be forceful enough to rise to his mind to distract him from the Torah and divine service. As our sages say, there are three sins against which man is not daily safeguarded, sinful thoughts, distraction, prayer, and so forth. Okay. So this is what we kind of elaborated earlier, that, that when it comes to things which are actually forbidden, it never occurs to this person to do them, but they are aware of the desires and they protrude upon their thoughts. So we, we elaborated on this earlier. If someone has questions, I will address them, but I want to go back to something that was earlier in the sentence. You had a question? I was wondering what the answer was. Did you look at the footnote? What's the third thing? The third item is slanderous gossip. Okay, why did Alterman not include that? The Baini does not say slanderous gossip. Right? Okay. In other words, that statement of our sages can be read in two ways. It can be read as it is originally that. Things that everybody does, everybody, meaning generally speaking, is sinful thoughts, distraction, prayer, and slanderous gossip. However, if you're a Bainani, sinful thoughts would still occur to you. Why? Because... Right, right. They, they occur to you. Not that you're choosing to think about them, which we, we've addressed already. Right? Not that you're actually going to continue thinking about them. Distraction, again, is something that occurs to you. But slanderous gossip, you have to choose to do. And so for the Bainani, it would be inappropriate to include in that list slanderous gossip. This is quite a common thing in time where the altar will take a quote and not mention all of the quote because, and sometimes he'll, and, 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 and the reason is because sometimes the continuation of the quote is not actually pertinent to the way he's using that quote. So if we were describing regular people who are not quite achieved the status of Bainini, then yeah, most people 
are unfortunately guilty of the sin of slanderous gossip. The Baini is not guilty of the sin of slanderous gossip, but the other two things still apply. That right because those are not those are not sinful in the sense of volitional sin. They're just an indication of the fact that the animal soul is manifesting itself in the awareness and experience of the person by bringing sinful and distracting thoughts to the person's mind. Okay, that only happens though after prayer. Okay, now something that we, that we didn't talk about yet is he mentioned back on the previous page that after prayer, the burning love of God is not revealed in the right part of the heart but there's this inwardly paved, it's inwardly paved with hidden love that is the natural adoration of the divine soul, as will be explained later. So there's this idea of what's called the natural love that the godly soul has, and then there's the love that's generated in prayer. Does the Bainini maintain the love generated in prayer after the prayer? No. No. Okay. Um, if we go back to the page where we were where we left off the beginning of the new paragraph however the impression of prayer on the intellect and the hidden innate love and fear in the right part of the heart okay so we've spoken about the idea that prayer leaves this impression on the mind right this clarity in the mind that we spend a lot of time on but now we're seeing something else that there's this innate love that a godly soul has for Hashem and that innate love does remain after the prayer. Okay. So what I want to do is I want to contrast three different things. There is the innate love as it is in most people, which we're going to say is in a hidden state. Then there is the love that is manifest in prayer, right, which he describes as a burning love. And then there is the way that the hidden love is paved in the inner part of the heart. Is it inwardly paved with hidden love? Okay, so how, what are our three categories of love that we have now? We have the love as it is hidden. hidden. The natural love as it's hidden. The, the passionate, flaming love, burning love that's during prayer. That's not the and that's not the hidden love. love. That's not the natural love. And then there's the natural love that um, remains after prayer and that he describes as being inwardly, the heart is inwardly paved with the love. Okay. So what I want to do is first I want to just contrast these three different notions of love and then try and put them together in the context of the life of the Bainani. Okay. Um, so the first thing that we need to do is we need to talk about love because we can't contrast three different kinds of love unless... We know what love is, right? A while ago, there was a student at the women's program that I said, today's topic is going to be love. And she got very upset. She not in love. No. But she felt that I, I overanalyzed things. I'm going to destroy love for her by overanalyzing it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was like, that's the one that left. You're going to take that away too. <laughs> so you've been warned. 
Okay. So the, the Rebbe Rishab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, has an analogy for love. Okay? Now, this is an analogy for all love, so do not get confused. Okay? We did describe a love like a fire, right? And that was how many of our kinds of love? I had the love as it's hidden, the passionate love of during prayer, and then the love that remains, the, when that hidden love is paved in the inner part of the heart, whatever that means. How many of those loves were described as fire in our text? One, okay? So do not get confused, because now when I'm trying to describe love as fire, I'm going to refer to all love. All love is like? Fire. Okay? In what sense is all love like fire? So this is the following analogy. This is an analogy of love. Is that there is a fire burning. Because the fire is burning, you, of course, would like to put the fire out. That makes sense? There's a fire, it's burning, that's not good, so you want to extinguish the fire. So you attempt to extinguish the fire by pouring on it a clear liquid. Except that this clear liquid, instead of being water, is kerosene. Which Bottom right. Okay. Of course... Once you pour the kerosene on the fire, what happens? So now, how do you feel about putting out the fire? Even stronger desire to put out the fire. So therefore, you pour more kerosene on the fire to put it out. Of course it doesn't make sense. Love doesn't make sense, does it? You know, if people... When people feel love, they're not known to be rational, are they? Yes. When people feel love, they're trying to put it out. And what happens is, instead of it going out, it gets bigger, bigger, which makes them want to put it out even. This is only the case if you want to put it out, right? This is the case of love. When when Hasidus (laughs) describes love, love. Aren't you supposed to be over there? (laughs) It's like mess with my feng shui. (laughs) Not really. I don't really have feng shui. (laughs) Sit wherever you want. Um, okay. I'm I didn't explain. I just want you to understand the analogy. Yeah. Right? If people are married, they're not actively trying to like fall out of love. <laughs> That's What? You're making an analogy based on the love. concept. Yes. It's supposed to help you understand dynamics in the concept. That's the thing is that analogies are not always so intuitive. Analogies are often just to make something more concrete when it's not hard to, when it's hard to understand. But in other words, first off, yes, there is an irrationality about love that comes out in this analogy, which is not obvious on the surface. All love has an element of irrationality to it. By the way, what, what is the corollary to that? If it is rational, if it is truly, truly rational, then it is not? Love. Love. Okay, good. Okay. Why? Why? I, I like... Well, there's a famous quote, which has been attributed, I believe, to Albert Einstein. But I don't know if he actually said it, because like every famous quote gets attributed to either Albert Einstein or Mark Twain, right? <laughs> or Winston Churchill, one of the three. They said all the famous quotes and like whatever. So maybe he said it, 
Maybe he didn't. I don't know. But the famous quote is, is that the definition of insanity is trying to, doing the same thing over and over again. He did actually say it. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, it's the same like you look online and someone has a little quote that says Einstein. Okay. So if you do the same thing multiple, multiple times and you expect to get different results, then you're insane. Insanity being a state of mind that is not rational. Okay. Our person keeps trying to put out this fire by pouring what onto it? Kerosene. Kerosene. With the expectation that it will put out the fire. And instead of it putting out the fire, it has the opposite effect. And instead of learning and saying, hmm... I guess I should stop trying to put out the fire with the kerosene. What do they do? They just pour more kerosene on it. So clearly they're not being rational. Shall we move to love now? Okay. Now, this is how Hasidus understands love, which means anything else that doesn't fit this basic definition, Hasidus would say is not truly love. It is only love in a borrowed sense of the term. Okay. Love is when you have a feeling of a desire to be close to someone. What? (laughs) (laughs) This desire um, of feeling close to, to be desiring to feel close to someone, um, it's very strong, it's very powerful. And you feel the urge to do things to quiet that urge. What is the thing that quiets the urge to be close to someone is to actually become closer. So you do things to become closer to them. Thinking that now you will find peace. What happens? Now that you're close to them, you want to be even closer. And you feel if I could only just get closer, then it would all be good. And you get, then you do things to get closer. And then what happens? You want to be even closer. And so you act, right? In other words, there is a, there is a level of angst. There's a level of, of, of yearning, of, of being dissatisfied in love because I would like to be closer. I need to be closer. And then what happens when you get closer? You're not like, ah, now I'm close. It's all good. No. What happens? So if this process continues, ad infinitum, what will happen to the person? You will go crazy. You will become consumed, right? That's what love is, <coughs> right? If you're like, I would really like something, and I got it, I'm like, okay, that was good, I got it. Then as far as cynicism is concerned, that was not really. If you're like, I really, really want this, then I get it, like, ooh, that's not enough, I need more. You're like, mm, I see this as leading me down an all-consuming path. Probably not so good for me. I'm gonna back out. That means it wasn't. Really that's right. No, yeah. If you resist love, even if you have the desire. No, 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 no. No, if, if, that's, if that's a natural expression of that. In other words, I, in other words, I really want something. Mm-hmm. I'm really under the pressure that when I have it, I will be satisfied. I get it. I'm not satisfied. And that itself makes me realize, you know what, I should stop. Then that was never love. Now, you can stop loving by using some other aspect of your psyche. That's not what I'm talking about. But you, like, so like, for instance, a lot of things that we get very worked up about, when we get them, we realize like, I'm not really satisfied. And like, I could just get worked up again about more, but then I won't be satisfied. And just, it feels empty and feels like, like, no, love, love doesn't have that. Love has it no matter how much you have, the more you have, the meaning the closer you are, the closer you feel you need to be. So the more you try to get close then, and you achieve closeness. 
So the desire to be close is the fire. The getting closer is pouring on the kerosene. Now, why do we use the analogy of kerosene? Because in the analogy, the person is pouring the kerosene on the fire thinking that what's that going to do? Quiet the fire. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to fall out of love as you understood it, but that my love will be fulfilled. I'll feel like, ah, now I got what I want. But the thing is, instead of actually putting the fire out, putting that yearning out, and now like I'm not with, not with disdain or disinterest, but with satisfaction, instead of feeling satisfied, the person actually just feels a stronger, deeper desire to be closer. So the thing that is supposed to satisfy you actually just ends up heightening the urgency and the need. And therefore, love has a quality of being eternal. It continues and perpetuates itself. Okay? Uh, any kind of feeling that doesn't do that, that burns itself out, is not really love. It's imitation love. It might look like love at the surface, but it's not love. Some people like to use the word lust. You can use whatever word you want. I don't really care. So when Chiz talks about love in the true sense of the meaning, love is that your part of your being feels that you need to be close to someone. And therefore, you, you have this, you need to be close to them. So you do stuff to what? Get closer. And as you're closer, what happens? Instead of feeling like you got what you needed, you feel like you need even more. So what would it mean to love Hashem? What would it mean to love your fellow Jew? To love your parents, to love your children? That's love. All love is like that. All love has this quality. To put this another way, just one second. If you could have enough, then is it love? You might think you could have enough, but when you get the supposed enough, it's not enough, then that's not love. Yes? Correct. <laughs> truly, you're true love. Truly. Yeah, yeah. What you're saying, like, what's sort of conscious state, because on a subconscious level, there's probably some part of you that like, wants to know more, right? Right. But like, maybe it's not active right now because of the places you're like, where they're just not fairly interesting. Right. Well, you, so you, you said two very important things. One is you differentiate between conscious and subconscious. Okay? In other words, there's different state, there's different layers of a person. That's one thing, right? Which is important. But then you also add something else, which is getting to know them. Is that the only form of closeness that there is? What are your parents like? Is that the only form of closeness that there is? No. no. Here's an interesting form of closeness. Just throwing this out there. It's not directly related necessarily to the topic, but here's an interesting form of closeness. Um, perpetuating someone's legacy. In other words, there's a kind of closeness where you're not close to their physical presence. You're close to their life. In other words, their life's work lives on through you. Their values live on through you. That's a kind of a closeness. There's many kinds of closeness, which is why there are many kinds of love, right? The love one has for small children is not the love one has for adult children. It's not like the love one has for parents. It's not like the one has love for his deceased parents. It's not like the one who has for a spouse. Arguably, their gender roles play a difference. In other words, a love one... You know, of a, of, a, of a daughter to a father is different than a daughter to a mother, which is different than a son to a father, than a son to a mother. Husbands to wives is different than wives to husbands. So all of these things make a difference because closeness is very, very open-ended. There are many notions of closeness. And so there are many different kinds of love. And then you add the other quality that you mentioned is that 
Not all love is on the forefront of your conscious experience. Right? Like there's a whole genre of literature and movies about like the hidden love of fathers to sons where the closeness has a sense of like that like the son feels like he's living up to his father's, you know, legacy and, and, the, and he knows that his father's proud of him. And like that, that's like the whole that's like the whole book or movies just around that. And it's not about like hanging out together or anything like that. That's a very different kind of thing than like I enjoy being in someone's presence. Right. So. so Love is tremendously varied because, it, because of at least these two dimensions. What level of the psyche it's operating on, like the deepest, deepest core things, like, like the connection we have between parents and children. And on a very, very deep level, does every child deep, 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 deep down want to know that their parents are proud of them? Yes. And isn't that a kind of closeness? It's arguably a very profound, it's an existential closeness. My, the ones who gave me being validate my being is worthwhile. That's like, oh, that's a pretty profound closeness, right? Now, it's not like the most visceral kind of closeness, not like, you know, we're hanging out, enjoying spending time together kind of closeness. It's a kind of closeness that interestingly can have happen if the person is not even there or the person's passed away, okay? And that can be a powerful driving force in a person's psyche, but not something you're necessarily aware of. So don't worry, you probably still love your parents. But it doesn't prevent a person from hating their parents also, by the way. We can be complex in our psyches. Okay. So there's the layer, the level upon which the psyche, the love is operating. Right? Um, and then there's another question is what kind of closeness are we talking about? Okay. But it always has the same thing that the closeness achieved just creates a need for more closeness. So it's not really a need that can be fulfilled. Hence, a person who attempts to really be rational about life would say, you know what? Unless I see the value in loving in and of itself, love is not a good thing because love is a, it, 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 it's perpetually unsatisfied. It's perpetually unfulfilled. Even when I do what should fulfill my need to be closer, I will just be creating a deeper need to be closer. Now, if you value the bond of love, then fine. But if you don't value it, it's not rational to engage in that. Why would you not value it? Because valuing is an entirely subjective thing. To value something is for you to experience the goodness in it. And if you can't experience the goodness in it... So you're saying that if someone doesn't want to love something, then they might feel like this is... No, I'm saying like this. Let's say somebody doesn't... Has, let's say someone has never, never really experienced love. But they see how love affects others. You're, gonna have, you're not going to have to convince them that it's rational to, to love. Like, in fact, I mean, there's a whole genre of like, philosophy and literature around that, right? People who, for whatever reason, haven't had profound experiences of love that they can value in their life for whatever reason, write all sorts of polemics against what love does to people. Right? And I don't just mean like, like, like immature infatuation. And by the way, when we move to areas in life out, where we have this sense that, for instance, like... Um, as a, as a society, we've started to move rightly or wrongly to a sense that as we want to be more rational, right? Rational means we, we change our means to meet our ends. We have moved away from things that are very love dependent, such as we think of nepotism as a bad thing. What is nepotism? Nepotism is bad. Why is nepotism? Nepotism means like I got a job, like I'm... I, don't, I have, a, I have a, a company, I'm a rabbi, I'm whatever, I've got, and I need somebody to do some work, right? 
Who should I give the job to? Obviously your son. Obviously my son. Why? Why? No. No. No, why? So that your son has a job. Because my son has a job, because I love him. That seems pretty straightforward, right? What's wrong with that? Tell me why that's a bad idea. So in other words, once we start moving to think about the ends having to be the thing that we base everything on, or sorry, right? what is the result, right? We want to be more rational in our distribution of labor and how that thing works, right? We start to see nepotism as a bad thing. What if someone more qualified is not getting the job because you gave it to your son? There's all these qualified people more qualified. Why should they get the job? Now, like most things in life, if you go way all the way to an extreme and you make it overly simplistic, it's obviously stupid, right? Imagine a society where we were entirely rational about every, every social role everybody ever played, right? Where there's like some, some, even if you could, like some godlike figure maximizing results by deciding, okay, well, you two are married, but if you got divorced and married these other people, your marriage would be much more effective at this stage in life. So you must get to, like, like I mean, we all think that that's kind of like, or, you know, horrible society. I hope we think that's a horrible society, right? Um, but then for some of us think that like a person just like hands out responsibilities to their loved ones with no regard whatsoever as to whether they're qualified, it's probably also not great. But, but this thing is like, yes, if you value the relationship and the connection and the closeness in and of itself, then love is the most amazing thing. But if you don't, you just see that it like, it, it, it corrupts everything and distorts everything. Um, I think you had a question a while ago, questions and answers about like Hashem chosen people, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that Hashem would love is actually very disturbing to most people. The Hashem is nice. Like he, he's nice. He loves everybody in the sense of he's good to everyone. He gives everyone good stuff. That's the kind of right. But like love that he really wants to be with A and maybe doesn't want to be with B, people find that a little bit disturbing. There's a kind of selectivity in love. Because... That's actually something that the, the you know in 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 Chassid we make a big deal to differentiate love from other emotions because love has its has its downsides. For instance, if you really love someone, how do you feel to them? How do you feel relative to them? You feel like close. You should be close, right? That can cause you to lose respect for them. That can cause you to be less tolerant of their differences from you. There's all sorts of negative effects to love too, okay? Love is love. It's, it's got its good qualities, bad qualities, but that's what love is. And it has an irrational quality to it that it just, you just, you feel close, you feel you need to be closer, you try to get closer, you get closer, you're like, you're not satisfied, you need to be closer still, and then, okay. okay. So now, In order for love to operate, you need to know that you should be closer, right? That's like the, the core essence of love. There has to be something inside that tells you, I, I should be closer. I really like, you have to know that. If you don't know that, you're not gonna feel love. If you don't know. That you should be closer, right? Words, you can't feel a desire to be closer to someone if you don't know you really should be close to them. Isn't that the result of love? Not no, it's the cause of love. So, for instance, okay, simplistic analogy. You have a person who's an orphan. They're sitting next to, sorry, you have a person who, who, who's not an orphan. You have a person who, who thinks that they're an orphan. As far as they know, their parents are dead. But it happens to be the parents didn't die. In fact, they're sitting on the bus right next to their parent. Do they feel any love for the person sitting next to them? 
do they feel love towards their parents? Do they, right, some kind of need to be closer to them? Okay. So why don't they love this person? That person is their parent. They don't know, right? They don't know that that's their parent, right? Okay. Love is based on knowing. And this knowing is not just being informed, it's like a deep kind of knowing. The language of Chassidus is called Das. Okay. This is actually based on a ruling in the Rambam. The Rambam says, according to one's Das, according to one's knowing, so is the love. So the question is, what... What part of me and in what way do I know that I should be close to someone? That's the way that, that that's going to affect, that's going to dictate the way in which I, I feel a desire to be close to them, how much I try to get close to them, and how that achieved closeness actually just strengthens and deepens my sense I should be close to them. So, Why should a child be close to their parent? Now, by child, I don't mean a small child. I mean a child of any age would be close to their parent. Their parent made them. Are you really saying that parents are like baby producing factories? No, but like... So... Can you, can, you, can you alter to saying something a little bit more um, respectful to parents? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, well, I don't want to say raise, because like, what if they didn't? That's right. I don't, don't want to go there, because now we're avoiding, because then they're not parents anymore. That's the people that raised you, which is a profound and important thing, but that's not the subject, right? So it's not, it's not just they made me. You can explain. You can explain almost anything. What? They live on through you, right? In other words, they didn't just make you like they're a factory and you're the product, right? They have, they have embedded themselves within you. In a certain sense, a child is the continuation of the parents, right? So um, the analogy that's sometimes used is that a child is like the branch off of a tree, right? The branch is the tree. It's just an extension of the tree, right? If you cut off the branch, right? The tree still lives because that's the main thing, right? Um, and so there's the sense, it's not the totality right, where there's more to a person than this, but there's a sense that on some level, a child is the perpetuation of their parent. And that's why, um, that's why the analogy for a godly soul is a child. Because a godly soul is the way Hashem embeds his own godly being into the world. Why is the analogy of a godly soul a child? Because a, a child is, the, the parents live on in the child. And so that forms a very important part of the child's identity. The godly soul is the way Hashem imbues his own godly essence into the world to change the world from within rather than just being transcendent God from without. So the most natural thing, therefore, would be a child would want to be close to the parent because the parent is not just the, the being who made them, but the parent is the original version of themselves, is the source of who they are in some deep sense. Now, in, the, in actual physical human beings, that is to a limited degree, that is not the totality of a person, right? We are not just the children of our parents, but it is a very p- powerful thing. 
And it's something that goes to the deepest levels of our being. So much so that the way Chassidus understands it is that there is no level deeper than that. I'm explaining to you what I mean, levels deeper or not having a level deeper. Then what? Then the sense you should be close to your parents. Okay? Um, can you forget where you put your keys? Can you forget where you put your hand? Mm-hmm. Why not? It's attached to you, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, so there's a sense of things we come to be aware of and things we're intrinsically aware of, right? We're intrinsically aware of our hands. By the way, interesting little tidbit, little infants actually do need to become aware of their hands. Did you know that? Yeah. Not the internal awareness that they're born with. But they actually have to learn the thing that they see out here is the same thing they feel in here. Right? Uh, anyone who had little, little baby kids, they see that. Yeah. <laughs> and so one of the things they're realizing is that that internal experience of my body correlates with that, that image I'm seeing out there in the world, which is, that's interesting. But like, I'm talking just like the inner sense, like as long as you're like, your neurology is working, you feel your body, right? You feel it from within. Whereas your keys is like way out there. It's like something, you're not even attached to you. Okay. Um, so the way it's understood is that every person is born with a sense that my identity really begins before me. I am not the beginning. I'm not the first one. I'm, in other words, or to put it like this, um, anyone here have younger siblings? Um, Did you ever reflect on the interesting thing that you experienced a part of your life where you were not their sibling, but they never were not your sibling? That's a weird thing to think about, right? Okay. Now, if you have, you know, my my kids, my oldest is is 13 and the next one is almost 12, so he doesn't really have any recollection of that, but they do have recollection of the younger siblings. They remember when they just, there was no younger sibling. The younger sibling. It doesn't just not have, cannot have any sense of life where they were not the sibling. Okay, now, what about parents? That's obviously the case with parents, right? You're born, you're, you're born, th- there were parents. And so that is like the hardware of the psyche is I have parents. I have, there are, there are those who came before me. Everybody else you meet afterwards. Everybody else, you have to encounter them. So your relationship with them is experiential, not existential. Now, does that mean your psyche is sufficiently developed that you're consciously aware of that at birth? No. But it's like built into the basic hardware of the human being. The human being has a sense of, I came from someone. I am the next generation. I'm not the first generation. And so there's this sense that to really be true to what I am, I need to somehow find what is my place relative to those who came before me. That make sense? Everybody else, you first have to encounter them, experience them, and then develop the knowledge I should be closer to them. So in a certain sense, the person that you know that you have to be closest to, the deepest, is your mother and your father, and I mean the actual mother and actual father who conceived you. That doesn't mean you know who they are, 
it doesn't mean that you like them. It doesn't mean anything else, right? And that's actually, those go hand in hand. Because this is so fundamental, because it's not based on experience, it doesn't necessarily manifest in our daily experience. It's something that's very core. An analogy that's used for this is that if you were to think about uh, a flintstone, a flintstone is a rock that if you strike it hard, it produces a spark. If you were to touch the flintstone and examine it and never strike it with that force, you would never discover that there's any, any connection to fire there whatsoever, right? It doesn't seem hot, right? Put it in water, it doesn't do anything to it, right? It's only when, in very particular circumstances, you strike it and you produce a spark, you recognize there's something special about its connection to fire. And, that, and the reason for that is because it's so, it's so much part of the very existence of it that it's hard to discern it. It's hard to see it as a separate thing. And so the knowledge that every human being has that I have a place, I have a belonging to my parents, to those who, who, who literally gave me my being as a human being, and therefore my identity is in some sense a perpetuation of theirs, that's the basic hardware of the human psyche. And then after that, you experience other people in the world around you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which is also why we would say that sometimes if a person looks for a father figure or a mother figure, because it's such a built-in thing that if they don't find that in the actual person, then they try and find it somewhere else. So now what's a godly soul? A godly soul is a being who comes into being in an analogous way to the way a child comes into being from the parents, that the parents are not making something, not making a product, but imbuing their very essence of who they are and perpetuating it onward. That's what a godly soul is. So a godly soul knows on the most fundamental level that it belongs with Hashem. Okay? Do siblings fall under the category of people need experience in order to... No, because they're an extension of the principle of parents. But they're an extension of it. In other words, why do you need to be connected to your siblings? Because you're all branches of the same tree. So it's via the parents, it's not direct. That's why I didn't group them in a separate category because it's not, it's not really a separate category. It's the, it's the offshoot of the category of parent. Okay. So now, as a Jew, do I need to do anything in order to know that I should be with God? No. But the part of me that knows that is where? In the godly soul in the deepest, deepest, deepest parts of the godly soul. Does that mean I actually experience it? Does that mean I'm aware of it? No. Completely hidden. On the other hand, I could actually get to know God, right? I could experience him and get to know him. Now, um, some of our parents are actually pretty cool people, right? They're pretty, you know, not you know, decent, wonderful human beings that, you know, you, you get to know them. You're like, yeah, I want to have a relationship with this person, right? You get to know them. So there's another kind of love that comes because you've gotten to know Hashem. By getting to know who He is, that creates a new sense of I ought to be close to Him, right? So I'm creating a new kind of love. So in the life of the Benini, when is the time where the, where the, where the person gets to know Hashem and come up with a sense that I really should be close to Him? 
What is that time to develop that experience? Prayer. The content, the, the, I mean, you're not going to walk down the street and bump into Hashem in the middle of like, you know, going grocery shopping. That's not how it works, right? The, it's, it's, a, it, it's a reflective, contemplative thing where the person comes to a, a, an, a, an awareness of Hashem and what makes Hashem wonderful, what makes Hashem great, what makes Hashem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that the person cre- creates in a sense for themselves that I should be with Hashem. So you see, there's, there's two kinds of a knowing. There's a knowing that's built into our very existence as Jews, which is very, very hidden. It's on the most core level of the psyche. And then there's a level of knowing that has to be created through the experiences generated in the, in the prayer. So that gives me how many kinds of love? Two, right? The innate love that every Jew has that's hidden and the love that's experienced in prayer. Now the love that's experienced in prayer, because I'm experiencing Hashem, I'm aware of Hashem, and I'm aware of how much, I, how much I should be with Hashem, do I feel the burning passion and desire to be close to Him in prayer, assuming I'm doing all that stuff right? Yeah. Whereas the innate love, does that feel, do you feel the burning passion to be close to Hashem? No. Okay, but now, what happens to that innate knowledge that you have that you should be close to Hashem as a result of contemplating Hashem? What happens? It gets brought to the surface. So the prayer actually has two effects, right? One is it creates this new sense. I've gotten to know Hashem and this is why Hashem is so important and meaningful and I was why I should be close to Him. But it also has this effect of bringing to the surface the innate love. It's like if you get along well with your parents, not only do you like your parents as people, you're also more in touch with the innate love that every child has for their parents. So the effect of prayer, the effect of, con- of contemplating God is twofold. It, right? As I get to know Hashem really in my own experience, that creates a new sense of why I should be close to Him. That creates a love that I really feel viscerally, intensely, powerfully. And it also brings to the surface the innate love that we have as our existence as Jews. So far so good? What's the effect of contemplating on God in a real way? As we get to know why it's so good to be with Him. That has two effects. It creates a new desire to be with Hashem that we do not have, right? That's the love that comes through experience but it also brings to the surface our, sen- our innate sense we should be with Hashem that we have by virtue of our existence as godly beings, as beings with a godly soul. Okay? Now what happens... Now, now let's just first talk, let's, let's first talk about duration. What happens after prayer? Does that sense of I need to be close to Hashem because I've experienced how amazing, how wonderful, how true, how infinite He is. Does that last for the non-tzaddik? Does that feeling last? No, it doesn't. In other words, for whatever reason, which we didn't discuss, somehow as much as, it, as, much as we experience it in our psyche, it never takes hold there. It never takes root there. Right? Think about this. There's many things you can experience in life, but they're not really lasting. I'll give you like a very simple example. Um, have you ever been at a wedding with good music? Okay, so assuming you're a halfway normal human being, if there's good music, how do you feel? Okay. 
what happens when the music is over? What happens in that good feeling? It slowly fades. It slowly fades. Yeah. Why? What? And you go back to its baseline. In other words, that music was not actually taking, bringing positivity into your psyche in a way that took root. It was, you were uplifted because of what you were experiencing. You stop experiencing it, you stop having the effect. So what's happening? The Bainani is contemplating Hashem. And that whole mind, as we discussed in previous classes, is completely engrossed in awareness of the divine. Well, while that's happening, they feel this tremendous yearning to be closer, right? That drives them to do what they can to get closer, and that's fine. But as soon as that awareness of the divine fades away, because they're only contemplating, they have to go to work, they have to go to school, whatever the case is, what happens to that feeling that resulted? It also dissipates. Something happens by a tzaddik that actually, that awareness takes root. And even when they're not contemplating, even example, something that takes root. Um, have there ever been people that you don't like and then you get to know them and you become friends with them yeah. I like now so there's people like I know people like this like that, people like this in my life where like initially for the first little bit of time they're like the person you don't want to sit next to <laughs> when they come in the room you're like less enthusiastic than yeah. you should be right <laughs> And then you get to know them, and then the reverse. Now that the person, when they're not there, you're like, you, you feel the lack, you feel the missing. Like, so something took root. There's something about what you experienced in those interactions that really changed your whole sense of them that stays with you even beyond the, those, those, those experiences, right? Yeah. So in order to be at tzaddik, something like that has to happen in the prayer, and that's just not happening in the main. We don't know why. We're not discussing why that is, but, but that's the case. So, yeah, the Bainani spends this time contemplating Hashem, has a sense of, of the truth of Hashem and the meaning of Hashem and the goodness of Hashem and whatever adjectives you want, you know, the greatness of Hashem. And because of that, they know for themselves, I should be close to Hashem, and they feel that, and they feel that, that yearning and that passion, and it's like a flaming fire, and, blah, 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 right? and they want to be closer. And if they do get any closer, they feel like they're getting closer, that doesn't quiet the passion, it strengthens it. And that keeps going, going, going until... You know, they take off their towels and fill in, right? Or they close the sitter, whatever the case is, and they have to, like, you know, get in their car and go to work. And all of a sudden, they're aware of everything else. The awareness of Hashem fades into the background, and it's like the music turns off, and everything comes back, just back to baseline. But that's the effect of that on the created love, on that passionate love, on that love that's generated only because I experienced some awareness of Hashem. But what about the effect that the prayer had on the innate love? Does that fade? Or does that remain? Now that I had spent this positive, this time having a positive awareness of Hashem, that brought my innate love to the surface. And that stays even after the prayer. And that will stay for how long, by the way? Anyone know? Yeah. So you do something to, to ruin it. It'll stay. It, it, it's not going to fade away. It will stay. Until you do something. In other words, it's, it's the kind of thing that has a... Because remember we said about love? Love, right? Love doesn't die on its own. 
So the love, the, 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 that sense that I know that I need to be close to Shem is, is something that's, that's, that's at the core of your existence. It's been brought to the surface. Unless you do something to suppress it again, it'll stay there forever. Now, it, it's easy to do something that will suppress it, by the way. I mean, it's not like, it's not, it, 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 and, and basically there's one thing you can do to suppress it, which is to make a choice to devalue it. Um, there was a chassid, his name was Reuven Dunin. Reuven Dunin, at one point the Rebbe made a chavrus with him to learn Tanya one-on-one, -on -one, which is very, very rare. I don't know of any other chassid who the Rebbe had a one-on-one -on -one chavrus to teach, to learn Tanya with. One time Reuven Dunin was late. He was late by, I believe, less than a minute. And as he gets there, the Rebbe's closed the door, and that was the end of the Harus. He never learned again. The Rebbe closed the door on his face? Not on his face. He, was, he came there late, and the Rebbe's closed. The Rebbe opened the door for him to come in. He wasn't there, so the Rebbe closed the door. And as the Rebbe's closing the door, he comes. And the Rebbe made a gesture like, we're not learning. And that was the end of it. What? <laughs> Reuven Dunin, we have, I mean, this is, I, mean, I could spend like the whole class talking about it. Reuven Dunin was a very special person. Reuven Dunin, Reuven Dunin was, 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 Reuven Dunin is someone who became not religious as a young man from a religious family, not a Chabad family, but like fully, fully not religious in any way, shape or form, and then decided to come back to being religious and was a true, like a true Baal Truva in the sense of like totally devoted to Hashem. His whole life, like, they're about to tell him to stop crying when he said the nighttime Shema. His sitter, literally the pages were wrinkled around the Shema because it absorbed so much tears. Like every single night he would say the Shema and he would just like burst into tears. Like it was like, like the old stories of the Chassidah from like he was, but he was very, he was very extreme, he was very intense, um, and he was, he was unshakable. And um, so, I mean, he was broken by it, but he was like, anyway. Not everyone there ever learned Tanya with, not everyone, but here's the thing. What he basically, he took from this is this lesson, is that some things last as long as you value them, and the minute you decide not to value them, you lose them, that's it. If it's really that important to you, you're not 30 seconds late. Now, is that an extreme level? Sure, it's an extreme level, but, but the dynamic exists. The hidden love, if you bring it to the surface through the contemplation and prayer, how long will that last? It doesn't fade, it doesn't die, because it's, it's a true part of your being. It won't fade, it won't disappear, it won't revert back. It's not, it's not something you have to force out and then keep it out there, it'll stay. But if you make a choice to act in a way inconsistent with that love, then what's going to happen? It goes back. Then it withdraws back. Does that choice necessarily have to be an actual sin? An actual violation of halacha? It's enough simply that you did something knowing that it's not consistent with the, the sense that I need to be closer to Hashem. That's enough. So even engaging in a permitted indulgent behavior can cause this to withdraw. Spending too much time contemplating your finances beyond what you really need to do for practical reasons 
is a classic example of chassidus of causing this love to revert back. Because yes, do you need to do a little bit of thinking to make a proper financial decision? Sure. But do people tend to obsess a little bit more over it than they, they need to? Is that bringing you closer to Hashem? So that choice to engage in that kind of thought is inconsistent with the love. So you have to do something. The love won't fade. Whereas that first love, the love generated by the experience of the contemplation in a bainini will not last beyond once they stop contemplating. Once they start becoming aware of the rest of their life, that feeling of the need to be close to Hashem will dissipate. But that the natural love, which for most of us is very, very hidden, we don't feel it at all, it rose to the surface as a result of that contemplation, as a result of that hisbarnus, and it will stay there as long as the person acts in consistency with that. Right? Now that love doesn't feel like a burning passion, like I need, I need, I need. That love feels like a sense of identity, a sense of belonging, a sense of rootedness. And in a sense that I need, to, I need to live up to that. It's a different kind of, different feeling of love. Now, you wouldn't describe the experience of the love like a passion, so they don't use the analogy of a fire for that. It, the first analogy is true. In other words, is a feeling of closeness? Yes. Does that feeling of closeness make you feel like you need to do things to be closer? Yes. And when you get closer, do you feel satisfied? Do you feel like you need to be closer still? Yeah, that stays true. But does it feel like this deep, passionate yearning? No, it feels like a sense of deep affiliation, deep identity, deep, deep bond, and needing to stay true to that bond. And the truer you stay, you feel you need to be even truer to it. So it has that dynamic of analogy, but you wouldn't describe it as like burning and passionate because it's not really burning and passionate. Right? In that sense, it's something that almost flows through you in a very deep way. And that's why sometimes it's analogized to water. So this kind of love, it forms like a, it, it, it forms like a strong baseline for, 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 for living life going forward. So the prayer not only has the effect of bringing clarity to the mind, which we mentioned before, it also has the effect of drawing the natural love, which comes from the sense that every Jew has that I should be close to Hashem, from its state of being hidden deep in, in, the, in, the, in the recesses of the psyche to the forefront of our awareness. But it's an awareness of it. We're aware of that. We don't necessarily feel that deep yearning passion of the soul or anything. And for the Bainini, those two elements remain after prayer. The clarity remains. And the sense that as a Jew, I have this deep existential knowledge. I belong with God. I belong close to God. That remains. But the awareness of how amazing Hashem is and therefore that sense I need to be with him, that brown person, that passionate love, that remains only when they're in, immersed in the contemplative state. When they leave the contemplative state, it's as if it, dis- as if it never happened. It's like the music turned off, that's the end of it. Whereas, by the way, if the person would be a tzaddik, even if they stopped contemplating, what would happen? That burning love would okay. remain and would start to transform who they are as a person Let's go back to the class we had about tzaddik a while ago. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. A question that you might not want to answer now, which is okay. Um, what gives someone that initial desire to even want to want to love? Like, I feel like even this is an like there's an assumption that someone appreciates that there's mm-hmm. meaning. If someone's not there yet, how do they get 
how would they even want that? I mean, if they don't have that love motivating them even a little bit yet. So that's a good question. I'll answer it now because like we have got some time, and I, I think the point that I'm explained is clear. Yes. Okay. So because the next thing we're gonna go on to is the idea of getting rid of of, of thoughts, and and then we're gonna move on to like relationships with other people, which are like topics in our night. I don't know if I'm gonna start cramming them in the next fifteen minutes. So I'll talk about this. Um. So I think. It's helpful to start with a theoretical model to answer your question and then move to some more pra- something more practical. So, if you, if you were to see somebody who has no interest in having friends, doing anything productive, um, being in any way self-sufficient, we all realize there's something wrong, right? Why would we assume there's something wrong? Because it's a natural thing, right? So the starting thing I think to start is, is the theoretical model is that a Jew naturally, right, has that basic desire to be close to a chef. And if we don't see that in a Jew, then we have to realize that we're already starting with something wrong. In other words, we shouldn't have our model being that the baseline is I am indifferent and now I need something to induce me into desiring to be close to a chef. But it's out of a lot of people's awareness, like it's very deep down, like you said, in the godly soul. Okay, well, we'll but I think before I get to that, just that, that thing, basic thing, and like if you, that has to be the model. Um, this is really important because just like we understand with a human being, like if you were to if you were to approach a human being who doesn't have like those those any interest in developing friendships and being self sufficient at all, right? You can't come and persuade them that this is a good thing to have, right? That's not the issue, right? The issue is that something something has um, inhibited corrupted, retarded, prevented, whatever word you want to use, something that is innate in the, in the, in the human being. Okay? And so you've got to figure out how to address that way. Okay? Um, so there's, I think, given that, I think there's... there's um, a few different basic categories we can use, okay? Number one is sometimes something is there already, but it's not noticed. In which case, the issue is not to um, figure out how to solve the problem or get rid of the issue. The figure is how to um, strengthen and pay more attention to what's working correctly. So anybody who's ever tutored a student, what they'll notice is very often many students, um, in addition to the fact they need help with academics, they also have a a, a self-efficacy problem. They don't believe that they actually can do the work. Okay? So it's not enough to just help them with the actual subject matter. You actually have to... In fact, that's not even the first thing that you start with. You have to work on the... Efficacy issue, right? They have to have a sense that they are capable. So how do you do that? 
Well, there's 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 going to be there's two layers to that. Number one, which is which is which is a, a more generic thing. You have to relate to them as if they're capable. If you don't relate to the person as if they're capable, then it's not going to work, right? That's to be general attitude. The next thing is you have to actually find what they are so capable of. It's so blatantly obvious that they're capable of, and get them to work from that place. So you get them to do the problems that they can do, and then you build from there, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. In a, so, so, so now, in a similar way, whether I'm talking about helping another person or I'm talking about working on myself, one model is to take that kind of tutoring model. Okay, like it could be that I'm not actually totally devoid of any interest. Certainly, if I'm curious about this about myself, I'm not devoid of interest. The very fact that I'm asking the question means on some level I'm interested, right? And certainly with other people, sometimes there is a level of, of desire and interest. It's just very faint. And so then it requires a, a general attitude of, of course, they desire it. And B, finding where that desire is manifest and building from that place. You see this very often with the Rebbe, that the Rebbe's attitude is that if someone is involved in anything that is in alignment with Judaism, to encourage that. Um, rather than like, you know, you have to want And that, that builds and builds and builds on itself. Okay, so that's, that's one kind of model that your person can use. Since it's innate, it probably actually is not totally absent in manifestation entirely. It probably has some manifestation. So if I have the attitude that of course they want it, and I find that, and I, you know, we draw attention to that and build off of that, it's like the spark that turns into a bigger and bigger fire. That's one tact, okay? Um, the other tact to take is to, think, is to say, well, okay, well, if it is in fact natural to have this desire and inclination and it's lacking, there's obviously something that's the causal factor of that, right? So figuring out what that causal factor is and removing it. Okay. And sometimes removing it doesn't mean removing it entirely. It means just, re- just, just sometimes like sometimes um, removing its power. Um, for instance, there, there, there are some things that they only have power because um, we don't relate to them for what they really are. So later on the altar, it says an example of doubts. When a person has a doubt, yeah, a doubt about Hashem, about tournaments, things like that, yeah? What's a doubt? What? What? It's thinking two things at once. It's thinking two things at once? It could be possible and it could also not be possible. So, there's a problem with words like doubt. Remember how we had this little thing about invertebrate in class? You know what an invertebrate is, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, give me an example of an invertebrate. Your cup. My cup is an invertebrate. <laughs> doesn't have a back, right? Now, saying what something is not is, is, is a little bit... right. So, doubt is just a, is just a generic word for... Not fully believing. Not fully believing. Mm-hmm. But now this question is like, well, what, what is that? What is the not fully believing? And so here's the interesting thing. Maybe doubt is not a lack of belief. Mm. Maybe doubt is, right? unlike, unlike darkness, which is the lack of light, doubt maybe is not just a lack of belief. Maybe doubt is something which, say, like a cloud prevents you from seeing. Mm. Not because there's no light, not because the thing isn't beautiful, just because there's a cloud in the way. Mm-hmm. 
So if the doubt is something which obscures belief, rather than a doubt being something which is a lack of belief, do I need to strengthen my belief in order to get rid of doubts, or do I need to get rid of the doubts directly? And the power of the doubt is that the doubt is experienced as a lack of belief when it's really just something which obscures the belief, okay? Um, have you ever had a conversation with someone who's obfuscating? They're intentionally trying to be misleading and confusing? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, how do you deal with that? Okay, but how do you deal with that in interacting with them? You're right, you could not interact with them. Assuming that they're, they're, they're all, they themselves are also a halfway normal human being. Proving them wrong? No, that won't work because they're just obfuscating. They'll just like, like, keep like, twisting what you're saying to this or into that. And... See, the premise of normal conversation is that both people are trying to understand each other and communicate with each other, right? Are they, are they really doing that, though, in this kind of conversation? They know they're not doing that. You don't know that doing that, right? Mm-hmm. But they are not, but they're, but they're, but that's like each person's like individual knowledge in their own little mind. The, there's something called communal knowledge. Mm. The communal knowledge is that they're not doing it. Okay? Um, in other words, that's why it would be kind of awkward if you were to actually say, um, Yankee, I think you're just trying to twist my words instead of having an honest conversation. Well, you already know that they're doing that. Mm-hmm. They know that they're doing it. So why is it awkward to say? Because you're moving it from private personal knowledge into out there in the open open communal knowledge. And in doing that, now they have a choice. Which either they keep doing it and they look like a real, you know, whatever. Pick your, you know, Mm -hmm. word you would like to use for that. Or they stop. Mm -hmm. Right? The power to do that is the plausible deniability. Is that like, I'm obfuscating, but it's, I mean, not... I'm just trying to have a conversation, just trying to understand what you're saying. You're like, no, you're not. You're trying to like... So what if you realize that, say, the thing in your mind that's creating doubt is not because of a lack of belief. There's some part of you which is a genuine vested interest to obfuscate my belief in God, and that's all that's happening, and I'm going to be honest with myself about that. Does it mean the doubt goes away? In a sense, yes. In a sense, no. The thought of... The, 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 the doubts can kind of... The thought can still occur, but it now just seems like it loses its power, okay? Um, and so there are things like that. Just an example where, where figuring out what is the issue, what is the thing, and getting rid of it. Again, getting rid of it doesn't mean like you banish it with a stick and you like it. It means figuring out like, why does it have this power to, um, to inhibit my natural desire to be close to Hashem and then figuring out what I need to do to get rid of it or the power it has. So later on in time, Yalta says that very thing. When that... When doubts come to a person, by the way, I want to just clarify a point. There's a difference between doubts and questions. You know the difference between doubts and questions are? Mm-hmm. Ask yourself the follow-up. What could, what could be an answer that would make me feel satisfied? Unlike love, questions have answers that are satisfactory. Mm-hmm. Doubts don't. Because what is the follow-up to anything you say to a doubt? Another question? Yeah, some version of who says or what about. So you have to start getting good. Like, if you have a question, you have a question. Questions are perfectly good. Questions have answers. Now, maybe you don't know the answer. That's fine. And also, the questions don't create uncertainty. That's another thing. 
Like I can be absolutely certain that the, like for instance, I'm learning Talmud and I'm absolutely certain the halacha follows this view and yet I have a question of how that view makes sense. Like those don't contradict. Okay. Um, in fact, there's a Talmud phrase in the Talmud that the Talmud sometimes say at the end when they have a question on a, on a particular viewpoint. They don't have an answer but they still nonetheless accept that that is the, that is the prevailing halachic view. They say there's a technical issue, we don't understand how it works, but that, is, that doesn't mean we don't believe that this is the correct view to follow. And they use a different word to say that we feel the problems in this view are so problematic that we have to reject that view and practice another view. Like you can have a question and still accept something as being true. Those are not mutually exclusive states of mind. So when you realize that you have is a doubt, not a question. A doubt, again, doesn't, a doubt obscures belief. Right? Whereas questions really don't. A doubt never really has a satisfactory answer where a question could, you may not know it. Well, then you just say, oh, well, doubts are just the way that the Yitzhara tries to kill my enthusiasm for Judaism. Right? So it's kind of like a little self-sabotage going on there. Once you call it out in your mind for what it is, it loses a lot of its power. Your questions still need to get answered. So that's a whole other model. Okay, the third model... Um, which is by far the most difficult. At the end of the day, we have something called free will. What does free will mean? On a very basic level. On a practical level. You get to choose? That's right. You get to decide. What is the, the Rambam in, the, in his Mishnah Torah, the, the laws of the, which is laws of the entire Torah, discusses free will in a particular section. Does anyone know what section he discusses free will? Yeah, the country's not here. Wait, that's not the No, no. The Rambam in his Mishnah Torah. He's the laws of Shabbos, the laws of kosher, the laws of Mashiach, the laws of theology. Like, where does he discuss the idea of free will? On which laws? The laws of tshuva. Now, why, do they, why does the idea of free will belong in the laws of tshuva? Right. In a sense, it's more of a choice than anything else. Because what is tshuva? On a very basic level, tshuva is I sinned. Okay. Well, clearly if I sinned, I didn't care enough about God to not sin. I mean, clearly, right? Because I sinned. Okay. What is tshuva? The decision to stop sinning, right? Very basic, right? Okay. But I sinned for a reason. What was the reason that I sinned? What is the reason that I sinned? I didn't want to care enough about God. What? I didn't care. I didn't care enough about God. Well, I can't do tshuva until, some, until that changes, right? I don't care enough about God, so I sin. In order to do tshuva, which means to make the decision to stop sinning, something has to change, which is I have to start caring about God. So I'm just going to wait until... You know, Hashem sends an angel or a tzaddik or something happens and I'll start caring about God and then they can do tshuva, right? Isn't that how people go about doing tshuva? Honestly, that's what people do, right? Like I sinned and I'm just going to kind of coast until God does something to change how I feel about him. And when I feel differently, then I'll make the decision to stop sinning. And comes along and says, um, no. If it's really up to you, you can make the decision to stop sinning even though you don't feel like like, stop it. You don't feel like you care enough. In other words, the, you can decide to move yourself out of the state of not caring to caring. That's basically the idea. And, and that's 
probably the most powerful answer to your question is that if caring is something, caring about being close to Hashem is something innate, right? And I have free will, then if I don't feel like I care, I can just. You can't just care. I can. It is not deeper than that. Then the question is what to do next. That's the deeper part. Once I decide to care, okay, well, what do I do next? All right, so then, right, the, right. So there's a, the, right, the complicated part here, the complicated part, there's the simple part that is hard and there's the complicated part, which is not hard, but complicated. The simple part, which is hard is, I don't care and I can decide to start caring. And it's simple as that. Now, I can't decide to fly because it's not in my nature to fly. So I can't decide to do it. But it is in my nature to be interested in me connected to God. So all I have to do is start to care. Start to care. Now, there's a separate problem is that once I start caring, right, like, what do I do to make that lasting and consistent and all that, right? And then you go back to the stuff I said previously. Right? So if a person is saying, I am completely devoid of any interest in being close to Hashem, right? Completely devoid of any interest in being close to Hashem. And I'm not willing to like find something and working, building it bigger. And I don't, not interested in getting rid of the obstacles, right? And because you're a free will, nobody can really make you do that, right? I'm talking about adults. I'm talking about educated children. Children is a different thing. Well, then you will get to the third thing, which is at the end of the day, you have free will. And that means free will, the, di- the deep thing of free will is not just you can decide what you do. You can decide you care about. that you care. Now, can you decide, can you, is your, can you, with your free will, can you decide things to do things or to care about things that is not within your capacity, is not within your nature at all? Can you decide to physically fly? No. Can you decide to now care about every single person's life um, this way you care about your own life? No. Like your, your, your psyche is not broad enough that it will crack under that strain, Right? But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that you, you are intrinsically capable of doing. And you could just decide. Now that you've decided to care, you can figure out what are the things that are fighting against that and how do they take away their power and what are the, and what are the ways to build on that little bit to make it stronger. Yeah. The Tanya is written presupposing the person cares. Right. The Tanya is written presupposing two very important things. One, three things. One, the person cares. Two, the person is a mature, more or less functional human being. And three, they trust the Alter Rebbe. Right, well, you even have to trust the Alter Rebbe to think that you're connected to God innately. Yeah, but the caring part you have beforehand. Right. Because remember, the Alter Rebbe, the, the, Tanya is, the Tanya is taking things that Alter Rebbe spoke to people in private audience. So people came to the Alter Rebbe saying, I want to be close to Hashem, and I don't know how. Mm-hmm. So clearly these people cared enough to come to the Alter Rebbe. Clearly these people trust the Alter Rebbe, hence they're unburdening to the Alter Rebbe. And you can see from the way the Alter Rebbe's answering is the Alter Rebbe's answers are presupposing a level of maturity, you know, and normal healthy human functioning. Okay, that's, yeah. I mean, mystically the Tanya can arouse you to truth and also, but, but on the, the basic text is addressing that mindset of a person. That's why the Alter Rebbe is not a very, inspi- the Tanya is not a very inspiring book. Um, if you read other kinds of works, the tiny has very like dry language relatively for the most part doesn't use a lot of vivid adjectives describing things it spends a lot of time just clarifying what is and isn't the case 
book. It's much more of a how-to book. Self-help. Yeah, it's like it's much like too. Like this is the reality. This is how you navigate it. And um, obviously, you're going to have to adjust on an individual basis. So you need a mentor, which he says in the introduction. Like that's it. He's like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not your life coach trying to pump you up or anything. That's not what it. Um, that's not. Right. So, if a person really wants to learn Italian properly, they have to have these three. Yeah, yeah. Although there is an interesting thing about human beings, which is that human beings, because we are social, if you were, someone relates to you in a particular way, you will naturally adjust to meet the, their expectations of yourself. So interestingly, learning Tanya itself, because it's addressing you that way, will actually bring you to that state of mind. Conversely, if you read something which addresses you as a self-centered, egotistical person who only cares about personal satisfaction and prays everything in, the, in, that, in that frame, what will that do to your mindset? Make you that way also. That's also what you were saying. It's a, the assumption of, let's say, the fair, like, um, did you say therapist? Mentor. Mentor, whatever. Tutor, tutor. Tutor, yeah. whatever. Like, the belief draws mm-hmm. that out in them. I know somebody who's a therapist, and um, one of the things he told me about that thing. So, so a very important part of, I'm not a therapist, so I'm just telling you this secondhand, but a lot of therapy is helping a person be um, capable and functioning, right? So if the therapist doesn't really respect that person as a functional human being, which is a general attitude, they're not going to be a very good therapist. That makes intuitive kind of sense, right? And so he said, look, I mean, everybody has their own biases and there's a particular kind of person that just he has a very hard time respecting. And so he does not do therapy with those kinds of people. Because he just won't be effective. It's like, I, it's like, I'm not saying they can't. I look at such a person who did X, Y, and Z, and like, I feel no respect for them. I feel like they're a pathetic failure, mm-hmm. which is my gut feeling about a person who engages in X, Y, and Z behavior. And he says, that's my entire sort of concerns, but I cannot, therefore, be a therapist. Because the, before we even get to therapeutic technique, has to be the attitude. This is a, a human being who is essentially worthwhile and capable. Now the question is how to turn that from just an innate truth to a practical reality. But like, just like you can't t- mentor, you can't tutor a student if you don't really believe they can do the work. So, yeah.